We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to this week's episode of The Real Story on The Socialist Program. I'm your host, Brian Becker. Today we'll be talking about the war in Ukraine. We're speaking with Vijay Prashad. He is the executive director of the Tricontinental Institute for Social Research, chief editor of Leftward Books. He is a prolific author and the author of Red Star Over the Third World. Vijay, welcome back to The Socialist Program. Thanks. Great to be with you, Brian. BJ, there's new news about the Ukraine war. Of course, we've been following it carefully since before the Russian military operation or the Russian invasion of Ukraine. we going back a couple months now. And it's very important for our audience and especially for people on the left. This is the socialist program to keep in clear focus what caused the crisis. The war had a certain beginning, but it had a prelude. And the prelude is critically important for us to understand why the war started, why Russia did what it did, and also what the path towards peace would be. It's one thing to go out and say Russia should immediately stop the war. And of course, we don't support the Russian military operation in Ukraine. We think it's a terrible tragedy. The Ukrainian and Russian people were one people, the Soviet people living together, sharing the benefits of socialism, at one time fighting together to defeat fascism during World War II. So it's a great tragedy. But simply protesting against Russia doesn't get to the root of the problem, nor does it lead us to a path towards peace, because Russia obviously took this action knowing that it would be evicted from the world economy, knowing it would suffer huge economic losses because it felt compelled to do so. And Now we have people all over the world waving Ukrainian flags and caring about Ukrainian lives. But if you actually care about the lives of Ukrainians, if you think of Ukrainians not as a pawn in somebody else's geostrategic chessboard, you have to think, well, how could the war end? And actually, we believe the war could end the same way the war could have been avoided, which is for the United States and NATO to sit down and negotiate with the Russians and meet their legitimate national security concerns, which were mainly not to have Ukraine and other Soviet or Russian allies, previous Soviet republics, be incorporated into NATO and thus used as a staging ground for advanced nuclear and conventional missiles that would target Russia. That's the path to peace. I want to talk to you specifically about why NATO took this aggressive position. Why the confrontation with Russia? It didn't just start even in the last few months. And to do it, I think it's helpful to go back to the origin of NATO itself and the post-World War II sort of framework, the U.S. framework, where the U.S. becomes the dominant superpower in the world. I know you have talked about this a lot. You have a lot to say, extremely interesting presentations. I want to start, though, with an audio clip. It's quite famous now. We've used it before on our show. It's Victoria Newland, who was at that time Assistant Secretary of State, talking to 
the U.S. ambassador in Kiev about the coup that was taking place, or this was before the coup, the Maidan protests, the days before the coup in February 2014. Let's listen to this clip because it, it speaks, in fact, directly to the points that you've been making. Let's listen. So that would be great, I think, to help glue this thing and have the U.N. help glue it and, you know, f the EU. I think Yats is the guy who's got the economic experience, the governing experience. He's, he's the guy, you know, what he needs is Cleach and Tony Book on the outside. He needs to be talking to them four times a week, you know. I, I, I just think Cleach going in, he's going to be at that level working for Yatsenyuk. It's just not going to work. Vijay, those are very choice words to describe it as such an important ally as the EU, but it says so much about how the U.S. is actually the puppet master here. Well, Brian, let's understand what the EU is and what NATO is, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. You know, NATO isn't sui generis. It wasn't created out of nothing by itself. In the immediate period after World War II, the United States developed a series of treaty organizations, whether it was the treaty with the inter-regional treaty in the Americas, the so-called Rio Pact of 1947, then the North Atlantic Treaty Organization 1949, subsequent to that, the Southeast Asian Treaty Organization 1954, the Manila Pact, and then the Baghdad Pact of 1955, the Central Treaty Organization. What each of these were, were attempts by the United States to cement its allies in different parts of the world and extend the force of US power. I mean, it's because of these treaty organizations that the US was able to create bases all over the world. Now, 800 bases in some 80 countries. I mean, the Manila Pact is what allowed the United States to establish and extend the Subic Bay base, which sat there, you know, for decades. The NATO pact with the North Atlantic countries allowed the United States to produce bases all across Western Europe, including the famous base in Mannheim in Germany and so on. So NATO was essentially not a treaty with Europeans as equal partners and the Canadians and so on. It's not an equal table. This is an instrument for U.S. power projection in different parts of the world. Now, most of these treaty organizations, Brian, just disappeared in time. Some disappeared because, well, you know, the relations of forces changed in these parts of the world. United States wasn't able to maintain its power effectively enough. But NATO outlived all of them. And in fact, in 1990-91, there was a suggestion that perhaps... NATO should be disbanded. After all, Soviet Union is gone. The Warsaw Pact is gone. The communist state system is no longer around. What does Europe or the North Atlantic need defending from? At that time in 1991, Boris Yeltsin was in, in Russia. He was totally open to the West. In fact, NATO and Russia opened negotiations after 1991 and Russia becomes a partner of NATO in that immediate period. So why was NATO to remain in, in existence? A serious question was raised. So what I want to first indicate is when Vicky Newland, Victoria Newland, who, by the way, was recently in Colombia and in New Delhi, and you've got to be afraid when Victoria Newland goes anywhere because you never know what's coming next after experience in Ukraine. 
when Victoria Newland says, you know, F the EU, what she's saying essentially is, look, the Europeans are an instrument of our power. In that same clip, she talks about the United Nations, you know, instrumentalize the United Nations. If the EU doesn't, you know, get in line with us, push them aside. We don't need them. We'll directly put our own people in charge in Kiev. So, look, if you're a European, you've got to listen to that clip and understand your situation. Firstly, the European Union is treated as essentially an instrument of U.S. power. And NATO is the United States Trojan horse in Europe. That's effectively what it is. The United States began to put pressure on the whole of Europe and parts of Asia to basically capitulate to its understanding of the world. This was fine, Brian, up to around 2007. In fact, Vladimir Putin, who was Boris Yeltsin's prime minister and then the president who took over after Boris Yeltsin, Mr. Putin was also eager for integration with Europe and the West in the first several years of his presidency. 2007, after the world financial crisis, I think a really different orientation came there in Moscow. They began to understand that the United States was not that keen on integrating Russia on an equal footing. And I must say, the spur for the Ukraine war now was not just in 2014. It's when Trump unilaterally withdrew from the Intermediate Nuclear Missile Treaty, the INF, in 2018. And then the Russians followed immediately after. That was the spur because it suggested to the government in Russia that the United States was interested in placing intermediate nuclear missiles very close to the border of Russia, and those missiles would be able to strike you know, important cities in Russia without Russia being able to defend against their arrival. And I think that was a game changer for Moscow, and it accelerated this conflict. Indeed. We had the Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty, which was a primary piece of the Cold War arms control architecture that created some degree of equilibrium, meaning neither side could develop missile defense shields such that it would give the other side a first strike capability, meaning you could launch your nuclear weapons first, you take out 95 or 97 or 98 percent of the enemy's nuclear weapons, and then you have missile defense shields to pick up the remnants, the two or three percent. So yeah, a few nuclear weapons come through, you lose 20 million people or 100 million people, but you win the war. And so the calculus of, of Cold War thinking, where one side thought maybe we can win a nuclear war, that was basically eviscerated with the those kind of arms agreements, the Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty. Putin said a few years ago the, a, the cancellation of the ABM Treaty was critical in terms of relations going south between the U.S. and Russia. But then to cancel the INF Treaty in 2019, at the very same time, the U.S. changes its military doctrine and says, look, the war on terror is no longer the priority. It's now major power conflict, meaning war with Russia and China will be the priorities for budgeting, contingency planning, war gaming, et cetera, et cetera. This sends a message to Russia and to China. Look, the U.S. is actually getting ready for war with you. And it's canceled these two important treaties. Now, again, for the audience, Vijay, you know it well, but the INF Treaty was the byproduct of Europe standing up in 1982 and 83. That's when the anti-nuclear movement, the freeze movement, took off. 
in the United States on June 12, 1982, a million people marched in Central Park demanding a treaty like this and a freeze on nuclear weapons. So Reagan and Gorbachev signed that treaty in 1986. It means the missiles that were placed in Europe by Reagan in 81, 82, that had a flight time of six minutes to their targets. And all of their targets in the Soviet Union were at the political offices of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, mayor's offices, political offices everywhere. The Soviets were alarmed and thought war was coming because they couldn't defend against those kind of missiles. So that treaty was an essential feature for Russia's national security. I couldn't agree with you more that the cancellation of that treaty by Trump, and without any debate, I mean, all this anti-Trump sentiment in America, where was the sentiment against the cancellation of the INF treaty? Go ahead. In fact, it's very interesting, Brian, because it comes at the time when the world community the term international community is used extremely precisely. It basically means the North Atlantic countries with the United States dictating the terms. But in that same period, the world community rallied around a new treaty which called for the abolition of nuclear weapons. You know, in fact, the group that pushed that treaty won the Nobel Prize for Peace. It was a very important period. And yet, in the middle of all that, as you say, two important things happen. The United States changes its basic doctrine, puts pressure now on Russia and China, and on the other side says, look, we don't care about nuclear, the nuclear control mechanisms that we had, ABM, INF, and so on. But what was underneath that? What was underneath that, I feel, was that there was a sneaking suspicion in Washington, D.C., that the Russian and Chinese project that had emerged after the world financial crisis, you know, the first attempt to create a different project was called the BRICS in 2009, two years after the world financial crisis, when Brazil, India, South Africa joined with Russia and China to try to create an alternative set of institutions, including financial transfer mechanisms, perhaps to de-dollarize and so on. All of that was on the table, a new intellectual property regime and so on. All of that had been discussed in BRICS. Of course, BRICS fell apart because in India and in Brazil, right-wing governments were you know, elected in, and these right-wing governments subordinated themselves to U.S. foreign policy. So that was the end of BRICS. There was relative incoherence politically in South Africa, and so it began to play less of a role. But the BRICS continues. They still meet. They still have discussions about some of these issues, but it was not a serious body of for an alternative. The Russians and Chinese, meanwhile, started to integrate more. Let's face facts, Brian. Russia is essentially an exporter of primary commodities, especially energy. I mean, that's what it is. The United States and its NATO partners actually scuttled Europe's ability to import energy. You know, the Iranians no longer were able to export energy to Europe. The Libyans couldn't get the energy to Europe because of that NATO war in 2011. And so the Europeans increasingly became reliant on Russian energy exports. At the same time, the United States just can't seem to get together its political you know, problems inside and U.S.-driven capitalism is in some serious disarray. At this time, China appears in 2013 with the Belt and Road Project. 
17 European countries sign up for it, including Italy, which is a serious member of the G7 and so on. This posed a real challenge to the United States. I, I remember this clip when Trump is sitting across the table from Jens Stoltenberg, who is the head of, of NATO, and, and Trump is scolding NATO and Europe in the same kind of way that Victoria Newland said, you know, F the EU. He's telling NATO, look, you want us, the United States, to provide a security umbrella for you against the Russians. Trump says it directly, against the Russians. Meanwhile, you're paying the Russians billions of euros every year for energy. Why should we defend you against people that you're enriching? You know, Trump says this directly. Uh, that means that the United States was beginning to sense that Europe was moving from a North Atlantic orientation to a Eurasian orientation. And much of the conflict around Ukraine is around trying to pivot this away, to trying to pivot Europe back to a North Atlantic orientation and not integrate deeper with China particularly, but to some extent with Russia. So certainly the kind of adventurism, nuclear adventurism that was on the table from the Trump administration and not revoked by Biden at all. You know, there was no complaint when Trump went into this nuclear adventurist mode. This is really what accelerates the crisis. Of course, of course, we do not you know, want to say that, you know, the Russian government should have advanced into Ukraine. Of course not. But the crisis was accelerated by the United States using NATO and using not just a military threat, but a nuclear threat. That's a very significant thing, Brian, which I don't think has been enough part of our conversations. I couldn't agree more. And when you look back at the last couple of months and especially the last four weeks, if the United States had this sense that Europe and especially Germany as the leader of Europe was gravitating towards the East, dependent on Russia for its natural gas, that 17 countries in Europe integrating into the Belt and Road Initiative. Well, how do you get those countries back into the bloc? How do you reinforce bloc discipline? Of course, a confrontation, a military confrontation is the answer. We played on this show over the last two weeks audio clips from Anthony Blinken's comments in the run-up to the February 24th invasion. And Blinken is, is very sanguine about what's coming. He's like... Look, we have credible evidence and we are convinced the Russians are going to invade. And there's no sense of alarm in his voice. There's no sense like we have to do something urgently to stop this terrible catastrophe from happening. Like, for instance, go back to the negotiating table or negotiate in earnest. They're very sanguine. And then on the front page of the Wall Street Journal, he says, well, look, if they don't invade, fine. If they do invade, we're ready. It's kind of a ho-hum attitude. And they were very predictive that the Russians were indeed going to invade. So they either knew they were going to invade. Maybe Russia was signaling enough. If you don't negotiate with us seriously, we have plan B, the military option. But it feels like they weren't unhappy about the Russian invasion. And when you look at what's happened in the aftermath of the invasion, I think the U.S. is quite happy. Wall Street Journal is not alarmed. They're happy. There's proposals to double the U.S. military budget. And by the way, Vijay, you said that, you know, NATO is really just an extension 
or a fig leaf for American power. The U.S. military budget is about $780 billion. The next 29 countries in NATO, their combined military budget is $360 billion. So only half. Those 29 countries have half of what the U.S. spends. And it leads me to the conclusion that the U.S. wanted this outcome because they could feel the drift, the disintegration of their control over Europe. And you mentioned about how the Russians weren't alarmed about NATO before. They were actually a partner with NATO after Yeltsin came in. In 1954, after Stalin died, in that interim period right before Khrushchev consolidates power, the Soviets actually offered to join NATO then. That was in the middle of the Cold War. They said their only condition was don't integrate West Germany into NATO. And we, the Soviets, support the reunification of Germany. They weren't hooked on a socialist East Germany. They said, let's reunify Germany, but have it be non-military, to which the United States says, absolutely not. Now, that would make no sense from a security point of view. But if the United States was worried that a reunified Germany and a Europe that was back on its feet didn't have an existential enemy or was locked into confrontation, it would indeed, as it had in the past, gravitate towards Russia. Well, look, one of the issues that should be on the table is the failure of Europe to create its independent path. You know, in 1961, in Belgrade, which, well, in Yugoslavia, part of Europe, the non-aligned movement was founded. You know, there was an attempt by countries in Africa, Asia, Latin America to have a non-aligned posture, not, not aligned either to the U.S.-backed camp that was there and then the Soviet Union, but to create something separate. Europe never had a non-aligned posture. You know, when Charles de Gaulle was the head of the government in France, he attempted to take France in what was known as a kind of Gaullist foreign policy. When the European Union was being constructed, there were two plans in 1961 and 62 called the Fouchette plans, named after the man who chaired that commission. These plans came up with a theory of how Europe can have an independent foreign policy. Has anybody ever heard of the Fouchette plans? No, it's, it's nowhere in the discussion, in the debate. Even the phrase Gaullism sounds really archaic, anachronistic. You know, Macron, people like that, they occasionally posture French independence, you know, in the tradition of Gaulism, but there's no independence. It's quite clear, even in the Sahel region in Africa, the French are fully integrated with the United States in those operations. They use each other's bases and so on. There's no real independence in European foreign policy. After the collapse of the Soviet Union, we saw in the Maastricht Treaty, in the Amsterdam Treaty, in the Lisbon Treaty, in all these discussions, Brian, there was discussions about a European foreign policy. It was simply not permitted. In many ways, you can analyze the NATO attack on Yugoslavia in 1999, the you know, wretched bombing of Belgrade and so on as part of a way to discipline Germany at that time. Because in 1997, 98, 99, Germany you know, had the audacity to believe that it could be the principal broker in the breakup of Yugoslavia. We saw German high officials out there posturing you know, in these capitals saying, we're gonna create a peace meeting and so on. That was simply not permitted. Germany had to be brought to heel. And the war in Yugoslavia, I'm not saying, the war in Yugoslavia in 1999 by NATO took place to 
bring Germany to heel. There were lots of factors involved, but this was certainly one of the factors. And it's very clear that in recent years, both Germany and France have attempted to sort of make all kinds of noises. In Angela Merkel's last period, actually, you began to see a great deal of independence from Washington. And it didn't have to do merely with Trump. It had to do principally with Angela Merkel's simple understanding that the people are obstinate and people in Germany and in Europe don't want to see high energy bills. They don't want to see high food bills. They will not tolerate inflation you know, of food, energy, transportation, and so on. So Angela Merkel insisted on the fulfilling of the commitments to Nord Stream 2, the pipeline of Russian natural gas that would come through the Baltic Sea into Germany. Merkel was in a complete opposition to the U.S. government on this. And, you know, the United States, one of the reasons Blinken can be so sanguine and, and relaxed and say, well, okay, let them attack, is the U.S. actually had a plan to substitute for Nord Stream to, you know, the gas pipeline from Russia. Well, what was their plan? It's very interesting. Their plan was to engage the Qataris and the United Arab Emirates to first solidify natural gas in the Gulf, put those solidified natural gas containers on ships, ship them to the port of Hamburg, then take the liquefied natural gas and make it into gas again. I mean, this is hundreds of times more expensive than Nord Stream 2. It's, it is guaranteed to create price inflation in Europe. Angela Merkel knew that, you know, she was a bread and butter politician, you know, and she was moving Germany in quite an independent direction. I'm not saying this out of any great admiration for Angela Merkel, but there are facts here, you know. The new government, the so-called, you know, red-green alliance is much to the right of Merkel on these things. It was willing to, in some senses, uh, go along with Washington's plan. But even they, even they have come to terms with the idea that there are obstinate demands of the people. The people will not tolerate high energy prices. So the Europeans are in the middle of something quite difficult. They are being used in a certain kind of power play. But the European public is going to suffer greatly, Brian. It's going to take, you know, months, if not years, to create the liquefied natural gas platforms to completely change the system and so on. What happens in the interim? It's not enough for the United States to say, well, we'll try to bring the Venezuelans back online with oil and so on. That's not going to bring natural gas into the homes of people in Europe. They are actually going to suffer the consequences of this war, as much as the Russian public is going to suffer from the sanctions. And here's the other interesting thing. In the United States, almost zero discussion about the price that ordinary Europeans are going to pay as a consequence of this acceleration of a conflict that the European governments participated in. They participated in it. Their public is going to pay a big price, and that's going to have a serious cost. UNCTAD, the UN Conference on Trade and Development, has just released a note on food and energy prices. It's sobering reading. I wonder if the Wall Street Journal will give it any column space. I doubt it. Yeah, there's so many ramifications. We have also, you know, liquefied natural gas. And I'm looking at the Wall Street Journal this morning. There's going to be huge expansion of liquefied natural gas shipments from the United States as well. Very good for oil producers, 
but not only is it very expensive, it's also very dangerous. There was, in the 1970s here in New York City, there was a mass movement in Staten Island because the U.S. was having huge liquefied natural gas containers. If those things blow up, and they can blow up, you can devastate whole huge parts of the surrounding area. I mean, there's all sorts of environmental, financial consequences. And again, nobody wins in this except, of course, the U.S. military industrial complex wins. The U.S. military budget, the politicians now are calling for doubling the military budget. So is the Wall Street Journal lead editorial. The oil producers will gain a great deal because there'll be extra profits. And the United States has the advantage now of re-cementing its domination over Europe. And when you think about all of the events of the past few years where Europe has just been treated like complete rubbish by the United States, I mean, you take the Iran nuclear deal, the JCPOA, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. Now, the Iranians signed that with the five members of the UN Security Council plus Germany. So it was the P5 plus one. And the Europeans wanted to get Iranian oil because they need Iranian oil. They need energy. And Trump comes into office, rips up the agreement, says it's the worst deal ever. They all whine about it. They protest about it. They want it to continue. It's in their national interest to be able to buy and sell with Iran. But Trump basically says to them, look, F you, just the way Victoria Nuland said F you to the EU. He said, guess what? You want to trade with Iran? You want to buy oil with Iran? You want to live up to that deal? Well, you go ahead and we're going to sanction you too. And then all of these major capitalist powers like Germany, like France, they just get in line. They get on their knees, in fact. They genuflect before American military power. People might talk, and I think they cavalierly talk too much about the decline of American empire but when you look at the way the U.S. treats the other major capitalist powers and the way it has with them, it's astonishing. And here we are again. Europe didn't want to have this crisis. There could have been a solution. It could have been like earnest, good faith negotiations with the Russians. Make Ukraine neutral. What's so wrong about being neutral? I mean, Finland did it. Switzerland did it. Austria did it. It wasn't the end of the world. You know, what's so wrong about that? But the Europeans meaning the European capitalists, in spite of the fact that they have the biggest economies outside of the United States and China, so weak. I mean, it's like an amazing display of weakness and genuflection before the big boss of American imperialism. Well, in Brussels, Mr. Biden has been talking to his European allies and so on. And as you said, the issue on the table is liquefied natural gas from the United States, but they're putting pressure on Germany to immediately ban imports from Russia. By the way, while this war is going on and there's all the belligerent talk, the natural gas is continuing to flow into Germany. And Olaf Schulz, the chancellor of Germany, warned, said, look, I can't cancel, can't ban the natural gas because it will plunge Germany immediately into a recession. And that's Schulz, who is a completely pro-US guy. You know, As I said, there are obstinate facts that need to be put on the table and understood. At the same time, in this meeting, Mr. Biden says that, look, I didn't threaten Xi Jinping, the head of the government in China. I didn't threaten him. I mean, it's extraordinary. Like, that, that's an attitude, as if it would have been acceptable to threaten. What he said to his European partners is, look, 
And in that scolding way that Antony Blinken did in Alaska with Wang Yi, the uh, foreign minister of China, in that scolding way, he said, I told Xi Jinping that China will pay a cost. It will pay a price if it continues to you know, help the Russians. And the United States has started building up another fake story, which I just want to put on the table so people are aware of this. The United States has started to say China must not send military aid to Russia. Now, there is no indication from China at all and none from the Russian side that China has ever planned to send military aid. In fact, China has been pretty sober in its comments about this war, warning that this is a bad idea, calling for a ceasefire, calling for respect of the UN Charter. Out of nowhere, the United States government starts this chorus. China must not rearm Russia. And I've seen this form in which you know this works. Is this begins to spiral out of control and they put pressure on China to say, we will not be sending military arms to Russia, which is something that the Chinese don't want to say because they have a very close relationship to Russia. They don't want to be put in that position to say that. This is going to increase tensions with China. What struck me in the call between Mr. Biden and Mr. Xi Jinping was that this brought back an old debate in the U.S. State Department, a debate in which Henry Kissinger played a major role. You know, this is a debate that goes back now, Brian, about 50 years. The debate was, you can't fight against both Russia and China at the same time. Let's use one of the countries against the other, and then later we'll deal with the one that remains. Henry Kissinger took the view, befriend China and isolate Russia. And which is why he put so much energy into Nixon's visit to China in 72 and so on. By the way, he continued to sing the same tune. He wrote a massive book called China just a few years ago in which he made that argument again in this new context. Befriend China and isolate and basically break up Russia was the underlying argument of the text. Brzezinski was part of that debate and so on. Others said befriend Russia partly during the Yeltsin years, befriend Russia to go after China. Well, I thought the response in China was quite interesting and it became a meme. People were saying, look, you know, first you want us to go after our friend and then after our friend has been knocked out, you'll come after us. No thanks. I think now there's a broader understanding of this. Well, let's call it the old State Department strategy of peeling one away from the other. But I thought the Chinese reaction to Mr. Biden was pretty interesting and sober. You know, they understand, I think, that these sanctions on Russia are something that China doesn't want to see extended because it will impact the Chinese economy. Mr. Biden has also said that he knows everything, you see, because he said that, well, we know that the Chinese would prefer to integrate with the West and not with Russia. Well, but the evidence in the last 10 years suggests the other way around, that China is very closely integrating with Russia. The question is, the Chinese are not asking for a choice. You see, they have not set up this discussion. Let's pick Russia over China. The Chinese are saying, let's trade with everybody. Let's have a kind of peaceful world order where we don't have to have choices imposed on us. Again, in Brussels, it's the United States that's imposing a choice telling the Chinese it's either the West or Russia. It's not the Chinese saying we pick Russia over the West, you know. So there are these false choices that the West continues to impose on countries. People need to understand that, you know, these are not impositions coming from outside. These are Washington's impositions. 
Xi Jinping didn't tell Biden, you pick China over Russia. No, he, he said, let's have a peaceful you know, world. That's what we're orienting ourselves toward. I don't think this is sufficiently recognized how Washington imposes this sort of Bush mentality. Either you're with us or you're against us. It's not just George W. Bush, the cowboy after 9-11 who made that statement, you're either with us or against us. It seems to be baked into the cake of Washington's attitude to the world. Either you're with us or you're against us. No, no, we don't want that. We want to live in a planet of human beings, not in a kind of camp world where the United States in, imposes choices upon countries. Indeed. The arrogance of power is such a dominant feature and so just basically assumed within American politics. Like we have the power, we can tell the rest of the world what to do, we meaning the establishment, the elites, and it's not even a subject of debate. There's nobody in the U.S. media that says, how dare you talk to other sovereign heads of state like this? I want to go to another part of this story, Vijay, and it's an unfolding story. I'll ask you to get out your crystal ball. I know you, you always have one at the ready to talk about the future. I want to play a clip from the CEO of BlackRock, which is the largest equity asset management firm. It has three, no, $9 trillion in assets. This is Larry Fink. He was doing the rounds on American media yesterday. He says, basically, this is the Russia's war in Ukraine is a pivotal moment in history. It marks the end of what he calls the second stage of globalization. I want to play the clip. It's got a couple really interesting elements to it and then get your reaction. Let's watch and listen. You've been through 40 years of market ups, downs, crisis. You're a bond trader. You created BlackRock from zero. It's nine trillion. You've seen it all. You were in the middle of the financial crisis. How would you like rate what's going on now with Russia, with inflation, with all the stuff that's going on in Europe with, mm. I, I guess, 2008 or any of the other ones? I think this is potentially much broader and, and, and bigger for the global world. Um, since 1990, the, with the dismemberment of the Soviet Union, um, the world benefited from this incredible peace dividend. Absolutely. Absolutely. And this peace dividend created opportunities for American firms worldwide. We expanded globally. Right. We, we, you know, we were able to expand and build and, and do amazing things. And as did other countries were able to do that. But also importantly, you know, we raised the standard of living for the entire world. That peace dividend is now over. And this is a big seismic change. We now have to be much more thoughtful about geopolitical issues. I think the biggest implication for the Russian invasion to Ukraine and the, and the right. response is we're all waking up to all these dependencies. Right. Europe was too dependent on Russia, oil, and gas. And every company I'm talking to right now are asking themselves, where are our other dependencies? VJ, right. I think it's interesting. You get uh, some insight into the thinking of the big bourgeoisie. Go ahead. Well, look, first, let's put Larry Fink into some context. He heads BlackRock. BlackRock, a couple of years ago, started a big investment push in China I don't know if you remember the debate that he had with George Soros. Soros took to the pages of the Wall Street Journal to attack Larry Fink for doing business in China. This is the kind of 
thinking in the big bourgeoisie in the United States. But of all of them, and my God, I'm, I don't want to appear at all to be sympathetic to Larry Fink, but Larry Fink has a general sense of the world. He's not a parochial thinker. You know, I, I think George Soros is is ridiculously parochial in some of his attitudes about the rest of the world. In fact, he would like to see some sort of fantasy of the United States expanded all over the world, doesn't understand that there are rich and deep cultures that produce different forms of human life that are not going to look like, you know, New York City everywhere. For God's sake, you know, George, you can't impose your fantasy on the rest of the planet. Fink is a little more interesting. And I think in this quote that he's, which you played, he's right, Brian, because look, I've just been reporting a bunch of stories on Central Asia, which is greatly damaged by the sanctions on Russia. I'm talking about the Kyrgyz Republic, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, and so on. They've been greatly damaged by the sanctions. And in all these countries, in Kazakhstan in particular, Tokayev, the president, gave a State of the Union address where he talked about the needs of food security. People are talking about breaking out of the food supply chain, global supply chain, coming back, creating national and regional supply chains for food products. You know, partly this is occasioned by the pandemic, by the breakdown of the supply chain, but also by this war. You know, 30 percent, 25 to 30 percent of the world's wheat grown in Russia and in Ukraine. There's now talk in Uzbekistan. How do we increase productivity of our own wheat and so on? We're returning to the 1974 meeting in Rome where the concept of food sovereignty was first discussed. I do agree that sections of the global economy will fragment, perhaps in areas like food. It's harder to fragment on energy. Because, you know, you, you can't just grow energy, but you can grow food. And I think there has been a recognition now that you can't rely on global change. So countries like small countries in Central Asia, but many countries in Africa and so on, will have to reconsider the integration into Western forms of globalization. But at the same time, other forms of globalization are on the table. Increasingly, countries are integrating with the Belt and Road. Argentina most recently. Larry Fink doesn't talk about that. You know, when they talk about this era of globalization has ended, what they're talking about is the U.S., you know, controlled and shaped globalization is ending. But other forms of regionalism and globalization are picking up steam. Now, I don't know whether the Belt and Road will survive this particular conflict in Ukraine and against Russia. I, I don't know. It's to be seen. We can't tell. But I do know that different forms of regionalism and of national economies, you know, disintegration of that kind of, of supply chain, delinking from those impositions of prices and so on. You know, if you grow more crops inside your country, you're not so reliant on world prices. That's why the United States doesn't feel the edge of food price inflation, you know, because it's basically self-sufficient in food. And I think a lot of countries will move in that direction. If not being able to grow things in their own country, you're going to see regional patterns of food production. Food is the beginning. And I don't know where this is going to go. But I do agree that I think regionalism is going to come on the table, not for ideological reasons, but for practical reasons that countries simply cannot tolerate high food prices. We know from the evidence of the French Revolution onward, that revolutions take place 
when bread prices rise. This was exactly what happened in the Arab Spring as a consequence of the drought in Ukraine and Russia in 2010. Later that year, there was an uprising in Tunisia, Egypt. Food prices went up. I think governments realize that they are extraordinarily sensitive to the prices of staple goods and to energy. In India, when tomato and potato prices go up, you begin to see unrest. So I think that we will see fragmentation, Brian, at least in the sector of food. I'm not sure it's going to be easy to fragment production chains in other areas, particularly in automobiles and so on, partly because the investments required to build these products is too high for most countries to bear. While there may be the efforts to localize or regionalize food production in the short term with wheat and so much of the world's wheat, and wheat is the second most important grain after corn in the global food supply for the masses of people around the world, for the whatever, seven, eight billion people. In the short term, the absence of wheat coming from Ukraine and Russia will have a huge impact on the third world. Well, that's exactly what the UN Conference on Trade and Development report shows, that the question of food prices in the third world is going to be extreme. I mean, I mentioned that the United States is relatively immune from food price inflation because it's relatively self-sufficient. You know, maybe even a country like India can withstand some of these blows because it produces enough grain. But there are lots of countries, small countries, that rely fundamentally on imports. Even a large country like South Africa relies on Ukrainian wheat imports. We don't actually understand, Brian, what's going to happen as a consequence of this. You know, we've had major catastrophic wars in countries that produce energy, Iraq, for instance. But there's actually significant supply you know, there's significant supply elsewhere. So Saudis could always pump more oil out of the ground to manage the offline situation in Venezuela or in Iraq and so on. You can't with wheat. I mean, you can't just start pumping more wheat out of the ground somewhere else. You know, taking Ukraine and Russian wheat offline, 23 odd percent, that is an enormous amount of food grain. Maybe we'll be okay this year because we have silos with surplus. What happens next year, the following year and so on? You can't just convert back cash crop lands, you know, where you're growing, say, cotton or you're growing other products like sunflowers. You know, countries actually in Central Asia shifted from growing grain to growing sunflowers because there was a market in the West for sunflowers and also for oil. That cannot be pivoted immediately. It's not like the Saudis opening the tap again. So this is the first conflict we've seen in the modern era where a actual important component of world food is actually being fundamentally taken offline. What does this mean? I don't, I think people have not, where are the game theorists in the US State Department when you need them? Indeed, and, and I, I made a you know joke about your crystal ball. I, I know none of us have one and it's, we have to recognize that we are at a moment in history where there is a global shift. This is a, something of a historic character, and we don't know the outcome, nor does anyone. The geostrategic big thinkers in the State Department who created this crisis and in the Pentagon, they think, oh, good, we'll unite Europe against Russia, we'll gain the upper hand, we'll fortify the empire. 
but the law of unintended consequences is associated with all major events and even minor events. And so we don't know. We have the, the rising food prices in the third world. We have also the Federal Reserve chief in Dallas said cutting off Russian oil and energy from the United States, boycotting it will ultimately lead and quickly to a recession. That means millions of workers in the United States will lose their jobs. And when they lose their jobs, they won't be able to pay their mortgage. And then they'll lose their homes. In 2009 and 10, 9 million families were put into foreclosure. No big deal for the bankers, no big deal for the geostrategic big thinkers. But for all those millions of working class families, an absolute catastrophe for black America a wipeout of accumulated, small but accumulated wealth in black families. I mean, just devastating consequences. We don't know where this is going. What we do know, VJ, is that the Russian government decided for some reason, and we're not 100% certain why there was apparently a shift in the Russian thinking where they decided to strike first when they felt war was coming. We don't know why they did it. Certainly the world wasn't prepared politically for it. It allowed the U.S. to galvanize the EU countries or the NATO countries under U.S. domination once again. So there's obvious setbacks that have occurred as a consequence of this action. But for the U.S. to be on its high horse and think, oh, now at last we really got things back under control. We're the big you know, hegemon of the world without recognizing that these will undoubtedly lead to new national class and political struggles of all stripes. And for us, Vijay, and this is my final question to you, and I think most importantly, because you're an author, you're a journalist, you're a leader in the International People's Assembly, for us as a people's movement, we need to have an independent political orientation because while we can assess what's going on in Russia or try to or in the United States or in NATO, we're building a people's movement, so we need our own sort of clear, independent path that is based on internationalism, on human solidarity, on peace, and of course, on radical transformation of existing societies so that the problems that we as a class or we as a people, we as a planet are facing that seem in one sense to be unsolvable are in fact solvable with political transformation. So with that said, Vijay, just your thoughts about What's most important for our movement? You know, Brian, I already used the word obstinate. You know, the people Franz Fanon wrote in The Wretched of the Earth are obstinate. They have an obstinate point of view. The obstinate point of view is give us land, give us food. You know, the basic issues are on the table from people all around the world. Our politics starts from there, from that obstinate standpoint. We can't tolerate the fact that people are going to be hungry. You know, we can't tolerate the fact that people are going to find it hard to have education for themselves, their children, culture in their world and so on. That's where our politics begins. It doesn't begin in the middle of a battlefield. You know, our politics begins there. And we know that a consequence of these kind of rough and tumble, great power machinations, you know, here accelerated by the United States is going to have a catastrophic impact on people. I said United States is relatively immune from food price increases, but that's not entirely true. You know, look at the way our food industry is organized. We have in Chicago 
grain markets where you know many grain producers go in there and they short sell and i don't have time to get into all that but the moment russian armies entered ukraine lots of investors came in there and bought grain in the futures market you know they'll drive the price of grain up fertilizer prices are up 17% globally fertilizer prices that means everything friends that means everything these people who claim to be the leaders of the world the managers of the world are only accelerating our crises and problems they are unable to focus on the obstinate demands of people they just unable to they are too busy in a sense you know with their fantasies of world domination and and i'm using the word fantasies admittedly it, it may sound like i think that there's a kind of doctor no characters but there is a little bit of that in some of these people you know this kind of big man walking on the chessboard trying to say this is what we're going to do to you what about what happens to the people who are going to suffer the consequences of your completely callous approach to world affairs these are not even unintended consequences brian you and i said things before the us war on iraq we said these are the 10 things that are going to happen and guess what they happened you know they called us idiots then but they happened the reason we were able to see these things is we start our thinking from the obstinate point of view from the point of view as i want land i want bread i want this i want that it's because we start from that perspective brian that we say wars are intolerable imposition of hegemony on other countries intolerable we want to live in a community of nations not in an unequal world order that's what we hope for there's nothing wrong in looking in the crystal ball and imagining that's what's going to happen that is what's going to happen we are eventually going to live in a community of nations vj prashad thanks so much thanks a lot brian You've been listening to the Socialist Program with Brian Becker where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram and watch video episodes of our in-depth show The Real Story every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner Breakthrough News. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com/thesocialistprogram and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. Thank you.